This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everyone. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today. Packed show ahead for you folks. Let's get to it. Over the course of more than 100 years, 150,000 Indigenous children in Canada were taken against will from their parents to residential schools. They were colonial institutions with a goal to assimilate, to break Indigenous children's ties with their language, their culture, their traditions, and their families. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission also documented how they were abusive institutions. But my next guest says, the federal government needs to stop blaming the churches for those institutions and take some of that responsibility on themselves. Melissa Embarkey is a policy analyst at the McDonald laurier Institute and a member of the Treaty Four Nation in Saskatchewan. Welcome to the program, Melissa. Thanks for having me today. Well, you've just written this piece in the National Post. Can you tell me what led you to writing that piece? What led me to writing this was the fact that, you know, some of the information, actually most of the information about residential schools is trying to, you know, they're trying to cover it up and they're trying to make it nice. Um, This isn't the case. You know, the federal government funded these schools for their entirety. They may not have operated them um, and they actually took over operation in 1969. So anything after the abuses that happened afterwards were at the hands of federal employees. So to change a speech and to change the wording of it is um, actually very disrespectful when they've been part of the TRC, you know, commission hearings, when they've been part of, you know, even the court hearings, they know that they have this responsibility. So why are they trying to hide it? And in your article, you also tell us a little bit about your your family story. Tell our listeners, what happened to your grandmother? My grandmother was taken at five. Um, her and a couple cousins were basically pulled out from under furniture. Um, they held their parents out, outside while they went into their home and took these children. Uh, she was only five years old, and she hadn't seen her family from from the age of five to the age of nineteen when she went home. There was no, there were no visits. Uh, they didn't allow these children to have any interaction or communication with their family. They were completely taken out of their community. So when my grandmother went back, um, you know, she didn't know her own family. She didn't even recognize her mom. And uh, she didn't know her brothers and sisters. And that had to have been a traumatic experience. And, you know, she carried that trauma into her adulthood because it was very, very hard for her to connect with her family. And we watched her struggle through this. And it wasn't an easy process for her. So your grandmother had not seen her community from the age of 5 to 19? Yeah, uh, she went home to a whole new world. You know, what she left no longer existed. Um, you know, and it actually took uh, the residential school quite, why she went home so late was because it actually took the residential school some time to actually find her family. Like they didn't know where her family was. So it took them a while to actually locate them and return her back to her community. And at this time, you know, everything had changed, you know, like even their home, it was, they no longer lived in the same home. So 
it was really, um, you know, she, she experienced post-traumatic stress disorder and she, you know, she was very open about it and, you know, she had a lot of anxieties in her life and it, it wasn't easy for her. Um, but yeah, that's just one of the many stories that are out there. Yeah, and the federal government at the time, uh, they had um, authorized the Department of Indian Affairs. They were authorized to forcibly remove children from their homes in the way that you're describing your grandmother had been through. And you feel that the federal government is not taking responsibility for that, that instead they're pointing too much to the churches. So I wonder what you think about the church's response thus far. You know, in the from the TRC recommendations, um, you know, they fulfilled what I'm going to say one of their um, number 58, one of their calls to action, and that was to apologize. And that was actually, you know, one of the first steps um, to reconciliation is to acknowledge the harm that was done. And they used terminology like assimilation and genocide. You know, they acknowledged what these schools were. They weren't actual educational institutions. You know, they were schools to assimilate the children. And they acknowledged that, you know, what they can do going forward is to work with the federal government and figure out, you know, what do these communities need in order to uh, move forward in their healing process? You know, that would be the next step in all of this. Um, You know, not to continue this, you know, for the federal government to continue denying what happened. No, let's move forward. You know, the church acknowledged the severe harm that was done. So let's move forward with the communities and let's see what we can build together. Um, Some people, some Indigenous people have said that the church didn't go far enough with their apology. Did you feel the same or did you feel that their acknowledgement thus far is enough? When I initially heard the Pope was coming to Canada, you know, what was surrounding it was the apology itself. You know, he was coming to apologize. That's what he was making this trip for. There weren't um, other things added to it, like he's coming to apologize and this is going to happen or, you know, and, you know, we're going to move forward like this. There was no other, um, there was nothing else that came along with it. So when he made the apology, you know, I acknowledge that that's what he came for. Now the, you know, the work is going to begin now. You know, what are the next steps? You know, you you kind of tell us where you're wanting to go with this. And, you know, we can start working together. So there really wasn't, um, you know, a whole lot of substance other than the apology. And that's what he delivered on. And now the next, you know, couple months is going to be telling on, you know, what kind of reconciliation, what, what kind of reconciliation work they're going to do with Indigenous people. And for other people in your community, I know you can't speak on their behalf, but what are you hearing from uh, different Indigenous folks in your community? Oh, there is a lot of mixed reaction out there. Um, You know, some accepted the apology. Others, um, you know, they became very angry. Um, You know, they felt it didn't have enough substance. Um, Like you had mentioned earlier, there was really nothing else that went along with it. And others were just indifferent. Um, And I think this is very telling on where we all are in our healing journey. You know, we can, you know, interpret this a hundred different ways. Everybody, um, you know, processed it a little bit differently. And even today, you know, it's been three weeks, I believe. You know, some are still processing that. So there's a lot of mixed reactions. You know, we weren't expecting everybody to feel the same way. Um, everybody had different experiences in residential schools. Some of the abuse 
was more harmful. And, you know, everybody just has a different experience from it. So, you know, having different reactions was something that we completely expected. And that is what we got. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Raji Sohal filling in for Mike. And if you're just joining us now, our guest is Melissa Embarkey, a policy analyst for the Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. She's written an article in the National Post that heavily criticizes residential schools and says the federal government can't blame the church alone for what happened in them and that the federal government needs to take some responsibility. And according to the Canadian press, the federal government removed an admission of federal guilt from a speech written for Carolyn Bennett, then Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. Now, this was in the days after the announcement about what was believed to be unmarked graves of children found at a former residential school in Kamloops. And Embarkey has written this uh, piece in the National Post that says uh, a draft version of the speech said children at the residential schools experienced unthinkable trauma, including physical, mental and sexual abuse at the hands of the federal government by simply attending school. In that line, the, the government removed the clause that says at the hands of the federal government. So they took out the part where the federal government is supposed to be taking responsibility is what Embarkey says. Now, ultimately, this speech was never delivered, but Embarkey says that the federal government should stop blaming the church for everything that happened at residential schools. What do you make of that? Uh, Ms. Embarkey, again, thanks for staying on the line with us to discuss this issue. Now, when you when you go over that redacted part, the edited part of that sentence, what what does that make you think? What's the first thing that goes through your mind? The first thing that goes through my mind was we received an apology uh, when Harper was prime minister, and it acknowledged the abuse and the effects of the abuse on not only families, but the communities. And when you start taking out statements like that, um, it really minimizes the impact of these residential schools. It's saying, oh, you know what, you know, this didn't happen. But there are, you know, there's tons of evidence out there that it did happen. And it actually did happen at the hands of federal employees after 1969. Um, you know, we had a couple of people in our community that worked, um, you know, with the residential school who were, who went up uh, for charges on abusing children. And they spent time in jail for that. So these abuses happened, you know, and trying to minimize it is not helping. Do you think that this is a federal liberal government problem or a Canadian government problem? I think it's a federal liberal problem. You know, in the past seven or so years, um, you know, it's all about what they want to do for Indigenous reconciliation, but they haven't actually put in the work to do it. You know, and not only that, you know, they minimize what we go through. There are how many communities that are still on water advisories, for example, you know, they say, well, we're working on it and, you know, we're doing the best we can, but it's 2022. Every community should have clean water. You know, this is not something that should be minimized at all. So it's just examples like that that show, you know, they talk a whole lot about caring about the Indigenous community, but they don't do a whole lot for us. 
You mentioned Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's apology. I remember that apology well back in 2008, that formal apology for residential schools, which, as you say, was largely uh, received well. But then, um, Ms. Embarkey, then at the G20 summit in Pittsburgh the next year, uh, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper, he said that Canada had one of the most stable regimes in history. He said, and this is a quote, we also have no history of colonialism. So how much do you worry that the government is lost in, in rhetoric over reconciliation, real change? I think we have to, you know, when we look at the speeches and the time that they were made, we have to look at what it was in context to. Um, you know, was he speaking specifically about residential schools or was it about another issue, um, another Indigenous issue? Because a lot of the times, you know, they're interconnected and they oftentimes overlap with each other. And I think the difficult part in all of this is parsing out what was spoken on what. Um, you know, during his his time as Prime Minister, you know, he did a lot of work with in terms of skills and training and education in Indigenous communities. You know, that was a real um, a real bonus for a lot of people who didn't normally have access to this type of training. Um, and then when you look at residential schools, you know, he made the apology. That was actually the start of the court hearings for, you know, individual compensation. It was actually the time that my grandmother, I think, was just finishing off her court hearing uh, for residential schools. So it was a lot of time of change in our communities because not only was it acknowledged by the federal government, but compensation was also paid out to the survivors um, who were still alive at the time. So I think what we need to do, you know, going forward is we need to parse out these comments and was it directly for residential schools or was it for something else? And then government aside, I wonder how much you put on mainstream Canada for doing their part. Do you think that mainstream Canada is doing enough to learn about reconciliation and figuring out what they can do as individuals? I think it's, I think what really started, um, you know, this whole process and this whole educational um, process with Canadians was when the graves were found, um, you know, because nobody prior to that point really knew the extent of what happened in these schools. Um, you know, a lot of communities knew, uh, like mine, we knew we had, um, you know, unmarked graves behind the residential school. Like, we just knew this. Um, and it took a water main break in my community to unearth what was behind there. Um, to date, you know, we found 34 unmarked graves. And this is even without, um, you know, using that land sonar to detect them so there's a lot of work that's happening behind the scenes and I think when this was starting to come to light it was when everybody started to figure out and really know what had happened in these schools because prior to that you know nobody hardly heard about them well they knew they existed but they just didn't realize the extent of what had gone on in them yeah Melissa thanks so much for being our guest today yeah thank you for having me this episode is brought to you by Shopify Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the show. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith. With critical shortages in every branch of the healthcare sector, our province poses a complex and costly issue for our government. How to solve the family doctor shortage? Joining me now to talk about this issue is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister Dix, hello. Hi, do we have you, Minister? We're just connecting now with Minister Adrian Dix, BC's Health Minister. Good morning. Good morning to you. It's great to have you on the program. It's great to be on the show. Let's first talk about the surfacing of this old promise from Premier Horgan uh, from 2020 that as part of the strategy for increasing the number of physicians in the province, we'd have an SFU new medical school. The last two NDP budgets since the election have not included construction funding. So I'm wondering if it's still a priority for the provincial government. Still a priority, and we're working on it. In fact, I've been working on it uh, for some time. You recall I was leader of the NDP at one time, and one of the things that we were looking to do uh, had we won the 2013 election was the second medical school in B.C. in Surrey. The reason why that's important in Surrey and why it's important in Fraser Health, connected to Fraser Health, is Fraser Health is 40% of the people of the province. And we needed and we thought we it would be important to have a medical school focused on primary care and on a growing area of Indigenous care in the province. And so uh, I'm very pleased that Premier Horgan included it in the 2020 platform. Uh, it, we've provided uh, business plan money to SFU uh, to prepare the case. There's a significant number of things that have to happen before you start a new medical school. But I think it's a very exciting proposal that will uh, build on the extraordinary work of UBC. We're also doing a lot of things with UBC right now to uh, look at expanding rent. Okay, and so do we national medical graduates and so on. So uh, I've been I'm very excited about it. It's an important proposal. Obviously, a medical school, given how long it takes doctors to to train doctors, doesn't deal with the immediate problem. We're going to have issues five, ten, fifteen years from now, and having a medical school. Oh boy! Sorry, Minister. We've. We've got a line breaking up with you a little bit, uh, but uh, that's uh, Adrian Dix, BC's uh, Minister of Health, talking there about SFU Surrey, uh, trying to make this medical school happen there. And Minister Dix, do we know where SFU Surrey is with that goal to build the new medical school? They're strongly supporting it. Uh, Obviously, SFU has long uh, belief that it would be an excellent place for a second medical school in BC. The focus will be in Surrey, uh, on the Surrey campus, connected uh, with all the work going on in Fraser Health. And uh, I think uh, they're proceeding with their business plan. There's a lot of steps that have to be taken from hiring a dean to getting accredited to going forward with the program, but uh, we're well on our way. And uh, it's an important measure, and we're very uh, 
I'm very enthusiastic about it, as you can tell. Yeah. And you mentioned there also that it's part of a longer term strategy. Obviously, building a medical school from scratch would take uh, many steps along the way. But how much of a dent do you think that a new medical school could make in the problem we were talking about in the intro there of the family doctor shortage? Well, it's one step. Uh, You know, in 2020, when the pandemic started, uh, we had to cancel tens of thousands of surgeries. And what we did uh, in responding to that, uh, in order to reduce uh, the number of people on the surgical wait list, is 84 different measures. Similarly, with primary care, coming out of the pandemic, there's some significant issues that everybody has been talking about, and it will require multiple different proposals. The medical school is obviously to deal with the medium term. The medium term is important. You know, in the next 10 years, we're going to have probably twice as many people over 75 who are the largest users of our healthcare system. We're going to need more primary care now. We're going to need it more in 10 years. The medical school makes sense for that. But it's not the only thing we're doing, of course. And let's talk for a moment about COVID in the province right now. At the beginning of this year, the ministry said that the pandemic was uh, something we were going to move out of very soon and that Dr. Henry was hoping for a mild summer. Has it been a mild summer? Well, it has. uh, The pandemic is still with us. Absolutely. It significantly affects healthcare uh, because uh, when healthcare workers test positive for COVID-19, of course, they don't come into work. We have significantly more people off work in healthcare than we would normally do. In fact, about 60% more in a given week. And that makes a big difference. I would say that because of vaccination, the COVID-19 situation is obviously better than it was a year ago and two years ago. And it requires, uh, has, is requiring right now a different approach. But we still need to get vaccinated. And I mind everybody in the audience, we've got about 1.3 million people who've been vaccinated twice but haven't got their first booster dose. And I encourage them to do it today. Appointments are available for people, and it's really important that they do so. In the fall, we're going to have a new vaccination program, we hope, with new uh, bivalent vaccines, which are more effective uh, in dealing with the Omicron variant, variants of concern, and subvariants of concern. And so um, we're going to be going through the fall, starting with the most vulnerable, obviously, to get everyone vaccinated again. But right now, if you've only been vaccinated twice, it probably means your second vaccine was last summer, like a year ago. It's time to get vaccinated for your first booster shot again. And there's 1.3 million people, including probably some people listening to us who are in that category. Yeah. And Minister Dix, uh, as COVID's still with us, a lot of people have still been able to enjoy a summer of socializing. They're just they're doing it outside environments uh, where they might feel safer. It's easier to avoid uh, the virus being transmitted through the air when you can distance easily at a park, at a picnic, that kind of thing. But what are your concerns with COVID as we approach fall and everybody goes indoors again? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's what we call respiratory illness season, usually November, December, January, February. And it's not just COVID-19, right? The steps we've taken to deal with COVID-19 have helped us quite a bit with, the, with influenza, for example. So the last two years, we've had very low uh, years of influenza. So uh, we're preparing right now. That's the work we're doing in the healthcare system right now to prepare for what we expect to be a very difficult fall and winter where we have COVID, where we, we can't just assume that we're going to have another good year in terms of low cases of influenza. And so we have to prepare our healthcare system for that and everyone else. But the reality is, and we've seen this a number of times, that COVID-19, depending on the time of year and the variant of concern in question, changes. And our approach and our response to it has to change. Uh, when that happens, then it will change inevitably again in the fall.
And with all the doctor shortages and the labor shortage throughout the healthcare system, well, throughout every industry in BC, is our healthcare system ready for a possible increase in COVID-19 cases this fall? Well, well, we, we're certainly dealing with that case now. There's about 400 people uh, in hospital who are positive for COVID-19 right now, which is a significant number. Right? 400 people is uh, about the number of people in St. Paul's Hospital, for example, if, you, if that was just one place. Right? So we're dealing with it now. But, yeah, we're, go- we're preparing exactly for that. Over the last two years, um, we've added 30,000 people to our healthcare system. This has been especially important in long-term care. And we have to keep doing that. That's why we've added uh, over 600 nursing spaces, more than 300 allied health spaces. We're working with the doctors of BC and have been all summer about issues related to family doctors. And so um, that, that work has to continue. And it will have to continue now and then into the future. I think our public health care system has done a remarkable job dealing with COVID-19 up to now. And I expect it to continue to do that. But there are real challenges as well. And, and what I think I believe is, and the good news is, that I think people have seen, uh, again, in a profound way, the value of public health care and will support continuing investment in it. And I'm working hard every day to see that that happens. And also, you know that Protect Our Province has been critical of the provincial government's response on COVID. And some of their scientists and researchers are saying that masks should be mandatory along with improved ventilation for kids going back to school. Can we expect any announcements from the government around that? Uh, I think I think uh, there's two things, One, right? One is there's the law, and that's a provincial health order. And then there's the guidance. When I'm in indoor public spaces uh, with people I don't know, I'm wearing a mask today and I will be today for uh, some uh, things that I'm doing uh, in those places. So that the guidance continues to recommend and will continue to recommend uh, in order to for your own protection at times and for the protection of others to wear masks in certain circumstances. It's just not the law right now. And uh, Dr. Henry and her team, based on the science, based on the evidence, provide recommendations about that and we follow those recommendations. So at different points in the pandemic, there have been mass mandates and vaccine cards and, <clears throat> and other measures. And that, I don't rule out that happening again. But right now, uh, we're in summer, as you said, and a lot of people are outside. And we're, um, we're uh, right now dealing with just guidance and not rules. And I think most people think that that's, uh, that's a good course right now to be on. Okay, Minister Dix, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning. Hey, anytime. Take care. Good to talk to you. You too. Take care. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to The Mike Smith Show. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike today. And we've seen these staggering numbers of deaths from the ongoing overdose crisis in our province. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking because behind every life that's lost is a family, is someone who has parents or kids or brothers and sisters. And we are talking about that on the show today. Lisa LaPointe, BC's chief coroner, she said that BC's lost more than 10,000 lives to elicit 
and toxic drug deaths since the province declared that public health emergency back in 2016. And Vancouver has started implementing safe injection sites to try and reduce these these deaths, but have they actually had an impact on BC's overdose crisis? My guest is Mark Hayden. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC's School of Population and Public Health. Hello to you, Mark. Hello, Raji. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, you heard my intro there. We have seen just a staggering number of deaths due to the opiate crisis in our province. It's so heartbreaking. And people wonder about these safe injection sites. Are they working? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And yes, they are, but they are only one step in a process. Because if you look at, actually, it's interesting, the Health Canada website says there are now 39 supervised injection sites operating across Canada, and that they talk between 2017 and 2019, 15,000 overdoses have been managed in those sites. So yes, they are a step in the right direction, but fundamentally what supervised consumption sites, supervised injection sites do is they, they signal a message. And the message is that addiction is actually a public health problem because historically how we've treated addiction was with prohibition tools, with enforcement tools, with police border guards, prison guards, um, jails. The whole, the whole criminal complex is how we've approached addictions in our society, and that simply doesn't work. And what we've shown is that supervised injection sites work a little bit, but really they're, they're sending a message that we need to do health interventions. And ultimately, what we actually need to do is called safe supply. We need to provide, the reason why people are dying is not because they're taking fentanyl or heroin, it's because they're inappropriately dosing their opiate use. And if they receive those medications through health facilities, they wouldn't die. Okay, now you said there we know prohibition doesn't work. I don't want to take that for granted. Why doesn't prohibition work? Well, we have been studying that for decades. And what we know is that essentially the more people are involved with the criminal justice system, the worse their behavior becomes. You know, jail is crime school for the same three reasons that Harvard Law is upper crust training school, because three things happen in jail. One is you learn some stuff, Two is you're constantly told who you are, and three is you make connections. So really, when people graduate from jail, they become more criminalized. When people graduate from Harvard Law, they, be, they go to the top of our society. So we really need to be very careful about how we use criminal justice interventions and using them for, for, for drugs that are drugs associated, crimes associated with drugs simply doesn't work. It doesn't make drugs less available. It doesn't reduce drug use. It doesn't reduce, opi- um, doesn't reduce overdoses in our society. And that's true all around the world. That's true in the United States. It's true in Canada. It's true in Europe. Anywhere this research is done, we see exactly the same results. And what we see when health interventions are used, they work to some extent depending on what the health intervention is. But the ultimate approach to drugs and to opiate drugs specifically in Canada is to actually provide opiates in a controlled way through health facilities. They're using them as a tool of engagement. When people are involved with a criminal lifestyle, they behave like criminals. When people are involved with health services, they go back to work and they take care of their kids. That's an interesting point. But have, have these supervised injection sites you're talking about been studied enough before implementation? 
the first supervised injection site opened in Vancouver in 2003. That was 19 years ago. There are now 37 of them across Canada. My stack of research on supervised injection sites is massive. They, they've been overstudied. You know, they've been studied to, you know, it's, it's amazing how much research has been done. And it's absolutely consistent. Um, and what they say, they help. They help somewhat. And what we need to do is increase our health approach to drugs in order to actually maximize the impact that uh, the health interventions can have with the overdose crisis. And I, also, I wonder also about diversion. Uh, Dr. Annabelle Mead was on the station talking about patients as young as 13 with severe overdoses here in Vancouver. Um, so she brought up this idea about diversion at, and how some of the patients are giving some of that safe supply away. They're not using all of it for themselves and it's finding, finding itself in the hands of of uh, people that were not meant to take it. Yeah, it has to be very carefully managed. Yeah, we're not, I don't suggest, no, nobody suggests putting buckets of opium or heroin or fentanyl out on the street corners of the downtown east side. No, it has to be done very skillfully within the context of a health process and it has to be managed and there's a whole, we, we know how to do that. This province has been providing opiates in, in the context of methadone clinics, which actually, curious enough, I used to work at many decades ago. So, so we know how to do it skillfully. And yeah, there, there's, there's, there's processes that we need to use and, and we need to apply that. And, and diversion is worse or, or there are worse things than diversion. You know, having people die of the pro- criminal justice approach to drugs is a worse thing that happens. I wonder what the goal is overall with safe supply. Is it to work to prevent people from overdosing or is it more to get people off the drugs and into recovery? Well, there are many goals. I mean, one, one of the things that is true about opiate drugs is they don't harm the body. You can take opiate drugs every day of your life and you will live a long and healthy life. So it doesn't really matter if people continue to take the opiates. What matters is are they going back to work and taking care of their children? Are they functional members of society? That's the benchmark that people should be defined as, as attempting to achieve. Sorry, so whether can, you, or not they t- can you just clarify that point there? You said opiate dr- drugs are fine to take? Yeah, opiate drugs are not harmful to the body is what I said. You can take opiate drugs every day of your life and you will, you will not shorten your life expectancy. So opiate drugs, when taken in the context of a criminal justice system, involve people in crime constantly in order to acquire the drugs. If people are involved in a health system and simply given the drugs that they want in, in a very carefully managed health system, it would allow people to go back to work and take care of their children. Whether or not they actually take the opiates is, is irrelevant. What's relevant is how functional people are in society. Okay, Mark Hayden, thanks for being our guest today. Hi everyone, Raji Sohal here, in for Mike Smith today and all week. Safe Injection in Vancouver's program of safe supply is examined by drug policy analysts around the world. Now you just heard an expert on our show from UBC's Faculty of Medicine. He was presenting the reasons that safe injection sites, he says, are positive in overdose prevention. But what about the human side? Eric Chapman, CKNW community contributor, talked to the people directly involved with safe injection sites on the downtown east side for some of their perspective on these locations and the value they have. BC says it has suffered more than 10,000 overdose deaths since the province declared a public health emergency in April of 2016. One of the tools used to fight the drug poisoning crisis 
is safe injection sites. But they come with much controversy, and are they doing any good or just enabling drug users? With limited data from the limited amount of safe injection sites that are regulated and available for research, it becomes difficult. So we have to go directly to the ones that we have to understand what these places provide. I talked to Samantha Moncton. She works for My Safe Society. Dr. Mark Tyndall from UBC's School of Population and Public Health started My Safe. It's a vending machine that supplies clean drugs. Samantha has been working downtown a long time. And I asked her to respond to the people that say there is little evidence to support safe injection sites use. And they just add to the problem by letting drug users use. Well, I think I have to ask the person, whoever asked that question themselves, to look into their heart and ask them, why are they relitigating something that we have already proven over and over that works? Why are we relitigating um, the basic the lack of deaths that have occurred in these safe injection sites? If you, if you want a success, no dead people. There's your success. Because um, what else are you trying to achieve? <laughs> That's pretty much the baseline where we're at right now is to have no more dead people. And this is why we're, we want safe supply to be out there uh, so that we can um, continue to understand the complexities of their addiction and uh, give them the medicine that they need without it being uh, a gun to their head and poisoned every time they take that chance. Insight was started 20 years ago, and there is data available from the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition online. I'm sticking to the human side of this. There is the argument that these places attract a type of person that could be violent, and they can bring violence to the area and cause more troubles for the community. I asked Samantha to address the violence. Yeah, I mean, if I if I felt the need to attack homeless people who are clearly going through some very difficult times, I guess I would say those things too. Um, however, I don't feel the need to attack them. I feel to try to understand them and understand why um, that that boy running out in the middle of the street screaming... If you look into his face, he was a seven-year-old boy at one point. He, he's someone's son now. He is one somebody's brother somewhere down the line. And if we can't look into that face while he is in the throes of his most um, distressed and, and, and connect with him in a humane way and say, clearly, this guy needs some help. And, like, I am aware enough in my society and I vote for the people that hopefully take care of folks like this. And if that government inaction isn't happening, we need to actually say to the government, Hey, like, get to step this up. You can't be putting housing units in without safe supply in neighborhoods that didn't want them in the first place. You got to put, you know, you have to have like our, like our, my safe vending machine, the one that uh, has um, like a safe spot for all their their supply yep. and they scan their hand and then they get it and then they go about their day. Now, if you have one of those machines installed in a safe, uh, or sorry, in a social housing setting where they have just newly built it, instead of people going across town and hustling and, and doing crime and then picking up risky, um, probably poison drugs and then dying in the rooms. Hello, I think I think it's pretty obvious what we need to do next. I also found someone that has a lot of experience with these sites. Trey, who is a manager at the Overdose Prevention Society downtown, he lived on the street in front of Insight, the safe injection location downtown, for three and a half years. And he shared with me why he thinks there is value in them. 
And he wants you to think about someone when you're pondering these thoughts and the people you see. His mom. When she, when she knew, when my mom knew that I was on Hastings and like using on the street, like it was, it's awful. Like no parent wants to know that their kid is on the downtown east side using drugs on a daily basis. But my mom would often say that she had this weird sense of, or maybe it was false, but I mean, it, I can say from like what I witnessed, like you're, you're better off using dope on the sidewalk in the downtown east side than using alone because so many people have naloxone. There's so much community response um, from people on the sidewalk um, from places like insight. Um, so like she had a sense of safety that when I was using the downtown east side, the chances of me being resuscitated from a toxic overdose were just slightly higher. Um, which I can say like from my experience and the things that I've witnessed, I, w- I would say that's definitely true. Um, and then obviously like the most important thing that a safe injection site would provide to um, someone who's currently entrenched in street life and using um, dangerous uh, drugs like fentanyl or crystal meth. And I say fentanyl cause there's no more heroin. Right. Um, fentanyl is the new norm. Yeah, and it's, and um, it's a drug poisoning, not an overdose crisis. Yes. And, um, and, um, basically like you can't, and this, I'm just stealing this from Sarah Blythe and I got to give Sarah credit. Like it's not my line. You, you can't help someone once they're dead. And, um, the most important thing that safe injection sites provide is, is, is bringing someone back to life. Like that's, that's the number one priority of overdose prevention society. And that's the number one priority of insight is make sure that nobody dies from an illicit drug poisoning. So examine the data, have your opinion. But the fact is these places prevent death and help mothers sleep at night. So, Eric, I know that you follow uh, this story um, on an ongoing basis. What struck you about this one in particular today? Um, mostly um, Trey's mother. One sec, Raji. It was Trey's mom that, that really struck me. And just, the, 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 I think those are, those, important, those, are, those are important and we need to talk about it because we often go to the, you know, our fears and, and, and things like that about you know, because what we see, like we see someone go into insight or around OPS yeah. that they're, they're dope sick. So they might not look the healthiest. Yeah, you know it's... what I mean? And so when we look at them, we think, oh, whoa, that person could be dangerous. When instead we need to think, oh, that person's hurting. That yeah. person's struggling. And so I think uh, the, the perspective is what really grabbed me about it. Just, you know, take a step, be angry, do your thought. I'm not telling you to act anyway, but when you see this stuff happening, just take a step back. And remember that this is trauma-based and these things need to be handled with multiple tools in multiple ways and everybody needs to be met where they are. Thanks for your story, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Raji.